service. What is up, listeners? Welcome back to another episode of the Full Service Podcast. I am Tank Smith, your host. Today is episode 71. Thanks for being here. Shout out to my guest from last week, Aniston Blue. Aniston, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. That was a lot of fun. If you have not yet, check out last week's episode. Make sure you are following Aniston. She is on Twitter at Aniston Blue. That is blue spelled B-L-E-U. She is at OnlyFans.com slash Aniston Blue. I will have a link to her Twitter, her OnlyFans, in the Libsyn page from last week. So make sure you hit that Libsyn page. Show her some love. As always, you can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, at Full Service Pod. I am at Tank Funkadelic. If you want to support the show, head on over to Patreon.com slash Full Service Pod. You'll be able to hear interviews and episodes you cannot hear anywhere else. Our monthly Patreon-exclusive episode will be dropping this week. I said it last week, but it will happen this week. Uh, (laughs) Should be by Thursday. It is uh, actually the second interview I ever recorded. So if you've been rocking with the podcast for a while, you might know that the first interview I did was Haley Muse and Raleigh. Second interview was actually the day I moved from North Carolina to Georgia. So I did that interview, hopped in the car, drove to Georgia, and moved. So... (laughs) If you want to hear the old days, if before I knew what the fuck I was doing, I'm still like, I sort of know what I'm doing. But uh, if you really want to hear the old take, <laughs> check it out. Patreon.com slash full service pod. If you enjoy the show, make sure you are subscribed on whatever platform you're listening to us on. You'll be alerted as soon as those new episodes drop. If you were coming to us on an iPhone, if you listen on iTunes, make sure you hit us with a five-star rating. If you could write us a review, that would help us out so much. Most importantly, tell somebody about the show. Tell somebody you like. Tell somebody you don't like. Tell somebody you really don't know that well. Tell somebody you Yell full service in someone's face. And <laughs> when they ask you what you're talking about, just be like, hey, it's a podcast. At full service pod, Instagram, and Twitter. And then they... Might listen, who knows? Uh, <laughs> don't do that. But uh, hey, tell somebody. <laughs> Shout out to everybody listening to the podcast. We should hit 30,000 downloads for the podcast, I think, like Wednesday. So shout out to you for listening to the show. I truly appreciate it. I don't know if I would be here if no one was listening to the podcast. So hey, shout out to you. Thank you. <laughs> Today, episode 71, super excited. My guest is a New York City and San Francisco-based escort, Mia Lee. We uh, sat down and talked like right at the end of December, so it's been like around like three weeks. Super excited for y'all to hear this. We discuss her love of travel, leaving her corporate finance job to pursue sex work, being in a relationship and doing sex work, how she's been affected by COVID, being an Asian woman in sex work, so much plans for the future. So excited for y'all to hear this. Got so much fun. <laughs> you can find Mia on Twitter at Mia Lee NYC. I will have a link to her Twitter in the Libsyn page from this week. So make sure you hit that Libsyn page. Show her some love. I'm going to stop talking. I hope you enjoy this interview with Mia Lee. Thanks. Welcome back, listeners. It's Tank Smith. I'm so excited for today's episode. My guest is a New York City and San Francisco-based escort, Mia Lee. Mia, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited. I'm a fan. 
Hell yeah, we got a fan on the pod. So excited. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks so much for this. Fuck yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> We're uh I'm currently in Atlanta. Where uh where are you located? I am back in New York. Uh just flew in last night. Oh hell yeah, nice. How uh how long have you been in New York? Long time. <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, I've been here since I finished university. Um I, I worked in finance based in New York, but I was pretty international uh when I was working in finance. So I've worked in Brazil. I've worked in other cities. I worked in San Francisco, Miami, lots of other cities. Finance kind of, or at least my uh, my specific sector of finance took me to a lot of different places. I saw on your website, it says you've been to like 40 plus countries. Like that's amazing. That's incredible. Is that a lot? I didn't feel like that was a lot, but I guess maybe it is. Yeah. What, uh, do you got a favorite out there? Like if you're like, this is my, this is the spot. Yeah. It's hard to assign a favorite because you like different places for different things. Right. But I would say uh, like a recent travel that I had pre-COVID was uh, I spent about a week trekking in the Sierra Norte mountains in in Mexico, like they're near Oaxaca. And it's one of those places that like hasn't been too overrun by tourism yet. Um, so it was really, really cool. And they have these little villages called Pueblos Macamunandos, I think. I might be saying that wrong, even though I speak Spanish, but it's actually a Zapotec word. So no, uh, not a reflection on my Spanish. <laughs> and they just have these like little villages that some of them are only have like a hundred inhabitants kind of thing. And my friend and I just trekked from village to village and we tried the Temescal, we tried the Polke and it was, it was a really cool off the beaten path experience. The food was simple, but good. And the views were absolutely beautiful. That has to be amazing. Like, especially going to a place where it's like not, not like touristy. You're like, I might like you're, it's like just so many new experiences and like your like original experiences that not many people are going to have. Yeah. I was super grateful to be there. And it was interesting because I went with a buddy who is not as, I don't want to say adventurous, but hasn't had the opportunity to, to travel in the way that I have had the opportunity to travel because of my language skills. And the last time my friend went to Latin America, he did this like $9,000 gringo tour through Bolivia and Peru <laughs> with, with, with a friend who actually spoke Spanish, but just maybe was not great at planning. And when I gave him a budget for the trip, he was like, no, no, you're missing a zero. And I was like, no, I'm not. I just know how to travel. And, and look, I have no, I'm not cheap. I don't have a problem paying for business class flights or, or certain elements of comfort, but I wanted a more... I wanted a different experience and that is why I wanted to travel the way I did. So we basically used some miles that we had from like to fly to Oaxaca and we probably spent about $500 in eight days on the entire trip and we tipped generously. We ate extremely well. It was a fantastic experience. That's awesome. Cause like, if you know how to travel, you could do it better than somebody who doesn't know how to travel. You can do it cheaper and have a better experience. And someone who's just like, well, I'm never, I don't know what I'm doing. Let me just throw money to make sure this experience is good rather than like, it's like knowing what you're doing going into it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really looking forward to more fly me to use and all of that once the vaccine rolls out, because I love sharing those experiences with friends and hopefully with, with clients. I've talked uh, with a few clients about doing things like that. And they're like, wow, that would be so cool. And I'm like, great, I'll plan it. Hell Yeah. Fuck yeah. They don't even got to worry about anything. It's already done. You're like, it's going to be, you already know it's going to be a good trip. Like, I feel like that's just like such a good sell. It's like, we're going to have a good time and it's going to be like, it's going to be dope. Fuck yeah. Yeah. I have one client who loves heli skiing 
And he was talking about going to Chile. And I was like, look, I'll be honest with you. I am not a skier. I don't love skiing. You do not want to put me in a helicopter on skis or probably in a helicopter. I mean, I don't mind helicopters. But what am I going to do in a helicopter, right? Yeah. And I was like, but I'll translate for you. <laughs> and he was like, done. See that? That's good. You got the see because you already got the like the language skills. You'd be like, I'll just be your translator and I'll go and just do this thing. I actually had a client take me to Dubai, and he was like, "Yeah, I want you to to also be my translator." And I'm like, "Look, buddy, that's a great cover story, but get a real translator." My Arabic is not great on the best day, and I'm like dude, you're doing business there. Like it's, you want a real translator. I'm not trying to like oversell my fluency here. My Arabic's fine to converse and to discuss business in the very narrow industry that I worked in. But this person was in the medical field and I was like, I don't, like I barely know how to say doctor in Arabic. Yeah. (laughs) You're going to, yeah, you need more like expertise, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And as someone who's hired translators uh, in my career, it's, difficult when and it's not the translator's fault that they don't know for instance restructuring vocabulary or like revenue recognition vocabulary but what i would do when i hire a translator is give them a little bit of background on the type of vocabulary that would be necessary to do a certain interview or deposition so that they can prepare for it and this when i told this client that he was like oh yeah that made sense and i was like look i'm happy to go with you as a companion but really like don't think that you're saving money on a translator because you're going to need one yeah how many languages do you know? I know, uh, like, you're fluent in, like, so many. How many languages do you know? I, I don't think it's so many. My Some of my friends and I have this joke that if you speak three languages, you're trilingual. If you speak two languages, you're bilingual. If you speak one language, you're from the United States. <laughs> <laughs> and I think a lot of that is is simply because English is the language of business, and we have the privilege of being such a dominant language and culture. So there isn't as much of a need if English is your primary language to learn other ones. That being said, I really wanted to sort of look outward to the world and have a more diverse intellectual and lived experience. So I learned Chinese as my first language. I was born in China and I learned Spanish in school, but I mean, a lot of people learn Spanish in school in the United States. Yeah, I, I learned Yeah, I learned Spanish in school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I have a friend who, who studied Spanish for longer than I did. When we went to Spain, she was just like, I, like, how do you say bathroom? And I was like, really? Anyways, um, so so I learned Spanish in school technically, but I, I worked in a lot of restaurant kitchens when I was a child. So I grew up in foster care. And for people who aren't familiar with foster care, it, it's basically the system of social welfare that we have in the United States because we don't have orphanages. So I wasn't adopted. I bounced from foster home to shelter to foster home. And in theory, your foster parents are provided with a stipend that's supposed to cover all of your living expenses. But in reality, a lot of foster parents do it for the money, which is fine because if nobody did it for the money, there wouldn't be enough homes to put all the kids in. But I had a couple of foster families who just didn't cover all of my expenses and certainly not the tangential expenses like I was on the debate team and uh, other things that you had to give a certain cash outlay to participate in educationally. So I worked part-time jobs when I was in in high school. Uh, I started high school when I was 13, so I was, I was quite young. And when I was in foster care, I was uh, I was documented as an immigrant in this country, but I simply didn't have access to my papers. So the jobs that I was able to get in my youth were also the types of jobs that undocumented immigrants worked. So I worked in a ton of restaurant kitchens. 
And it seemed like all the chefs were from Ecuador. So I learned Spanish in school, but I got comfortable speaking it working in restaurants when I was a kid in foster care. And then I didn't use it for a period of time when I was in university. And then when I started working again, I used it for work, right? Because these companies are international. And especially later in my career, when I got more into project management and running teams, I used it to run projects in Latin America and whatnot. And okay. then, so it's Chinese, Spanish, and then Arabic. I learned also in university when oil was trading at 147 a barrel and it was the height of the credit crisis, right? So I actually started learning about sukuk, which are Islamic bonds. And they're basically like equity sharing instruments that function similarly for many intents and purposes like corporate bonds. And I am a very lazy person. (laughs) (laughs) I like to call it efficient, but I'm really just lazy. So I minored in math and I majored in accounting in Arabic. And I was like, how can I get out of writing multiple papers for my senior theses? So I did a regression of the Sukuk Islamic bonds against uh, similar vector weighted corporate bonds. And that was my senior thesis. And my my math professor read it, looked at all my proofs, and was like, yeah, cool. I don't think my math professor checked any of my Sharia law references. My Arabic <laughs> professor did not read the paper. And I know this because I, it, this was like in the days where the professors like got paper papers. And the corner of my paper where the staple was wasn't bent. Man. So he basically just flipped through it to make sure that I had spelled all my Arabic words, right? And he did the opposite of my math professor. He checked all of my... Islamic law references and all of that. And he was like, good, good, good. A. And I was like, sweet. <laughs> That's how we learned Arabic. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Chinese, Thanks. English, Spanish, Arabic. You got anything else? Not, nothing that I want to claim. I mean, I typically have an excuse in every language for why I don't speak that language better. So like in French, I can say that I don't speak French because I'm Chinese. But I, I like to set expectations low. <laughs> yeah. So when I'm in Madrid, I'm like, oh, yeah, listen, I was born in China. I grew up in the States. Spanish is my third language. Like when I go to Riyadh, I'm like, yeah, I, uh, I live in New York. I'm Chinese. Arabic's my fourth language. When I go to China, I'm like, mm, listen, I've been in the United States a long time. Like I Chinese is not really my primary language anymore. And in the States, I'm always like, yeah, listen, English wasn't my first language. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good excuse like you got an excuse everywhere that's nice <laughs> it's great right you just gotta like set expectations low i was just with my partner in madrid and we were schmoozing with different business contacts and, and friends of his and everyone's like wow your spanish is so good and i'm like that's because i look like this right <laughs> yeah yeah i love the gringa curve I feel like the bar is low because they're like, oh, she's Asian and she's speaking Spanish. So they're like, it, it's like they're not expecting it to be fucking perfect. But then you just surprise them and they're like, oh, my God, this is fucking amazing. Right. And it's the opposite experience when I'm in Chinatown or when I'm in China, these Chinese aunties and grandmas will be like, you need to practice Chinese more. And my Chinese is fine. I'm not articulate. I didn't go to college there, but I don't have an accent. I'm completely fluent. I think what they're really commenting on is the fact that I have a very westernized demeanor and they don't like that. But yeah, yeah, it's it's just funny the different experience that I have with the Chinese community versus the Spanish speaking communities that I've interacted with. And I'm like, fuck that. I'd rather be in Colombia. (laughs) For real. Hell yeah. Where I'm appreciated for this beautiful language I'm speaking. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) 
Hell yeah. I know uh, you have a background in finance. You got any you got any financial tips for the people? You got any stock tips? Bitcoin is popping. Should I invest? What uh <laughs> I'm gonna give a very risk averse and boring answer that I no hard feelings if anyone's like, yeah, this bitch is bullshit. But I I tell everyone, please don't invest in anything you don't understand, and please don't invest money that you can't afford to lose. So I actually kept my CPA license to uh, do pro bono financial literacy and tax filing work for sex workers. I I found really early on in the industry that sex workers are victims of irreputable services from people who are either intentionally taking advantage of them or grossly incompetent. And honestly, I was going to let my license go inactive because 40 hours a year of continuing it is not really my favorite way to spend my time. But when I saw the need and providers started reaching out to me as I built my network, I was like, you know what? I did a ton of pro bono work when I worked in finance, and this is something that is a need and also something I can provide to the community. There are so many sex workers with talents in the creative space. I do not have any of those talents, but this is my this is my skill. I can offer this to my community. So I, my advice would be, if you're going to hire somebody, hire a reputable finance, uh, a reputable service provider, right? Somebody with a license, somebody who doesn't have any disciplinary records on their license, know how to look that up. In terms of investing, I think a lot of people see other people with big wins and making a lot of fast money. And I think that's very dangerous. I think that I personally only invest money that I can afford to lose. And it's like, I've done quite well. I've been fortunate, but I also spent 10 years learning about markets and finance and financial instruments. So to answer your question about Bitcoin, I don't really understand cryptos. I I know people in the space. Um, One of Coinbase's co-founders is a friend of mine, like a long distant friend. Um, And and I knew him when he was a currency trader at Goldman. And I, I don't, I just would never advise anybody to do something more risk averse than what I would do. And investing in cryptos is one of the things. I mean, if you, if you're comfortable with the risk and you, and you have money to lose and you know the product, great. But otherwise I would say stay away from gambling because that's what it is at the end of the day, if you don't know what you're doing. And frankly, even some economists think that investment advisors can't really beat the market, right? Which is not entirely true. I mean, you look at the returns of some hedge funds and private equity funds, and they certainly do outperform the market. But as especially an uninformed consumer, it's very difficult to make that prediction. And you always see that investment warning past performance does not guarantee future returns. Yeah. And it's it's just something you want to be very careful about. So that's my advice. I feel like the grass is always greener, too, because like I worked with a dude and then he was always on like Forex and then constantly trading. He's like, bro, you got to get on this shit. And I was like, dude, I'm going to just watch some YouTube videos and I'm going to do it. But I never did it. But it seemed like it was going well for him every single time. He'd come back and he'd be like, dude, I made like three dollars on this trade. I was like, I got to get in the I got to get in the market. Yeah. And that's the thing. So I I share my trading experiences. It is integral to my marketing, but a lot of people who are on stock twits or Twitter, like people don't always tweet their losses. Right. And I think I'm relatively honest about mine, but I think it's, you got to look at marketing as marketing, right. Even if it's social media marketing. Yeah. 
it's not all 100 percent true <laughs> it's well it's not even true idea. it's just that your friend who made three dollars in this trade might have lost five on another one that he might not be broadcasting or she might not be or they might not be broadcasting yeah you're only seeing what they want you to see or exactly. telling you about yeah you uh left finance to get into sex work when uh when'd you do that i did that in 2018 or, sorry sorry 2019 Okay, nice. Oh, yeah. Can you remember before that? Can you remember your first exposure to sex work? Not well. I think I probably saw some movie or show or read a book that wasn't particularly representative of high-end escorting. And I vaguely remember being fascinated by what these women did that was worth so much money, right? Because I want to say... A lot of people who made a lot of money potentially did not do so because they were idiots, right? So if you're charging so much to a clientele that can afford it, and obviously there are some exceptions here, right? It's probably because you're providing some service of, of immense value that would command these prices. So, and, and it can't be sex because sex could be purchased for a much lower price. Yeah. So I was just very curious at the enigma that these providers likely have. And I wanted to know how that was done, what it was. And I just immediately drew the conclusion that this is an interpersonal skill that is useful in many facets of life and career. Because there's like, it's so much more than like, okay, yeah, like you said, like, you could purchase sex for much lower, there has to be something else that people are spending money on. Like, why are people why are people doing this thing? Yeah, and, and I learned a lot of the answer to that once I got into the business. So that was, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. <laughs> yeah. How did you, uh, how'd you, how'd you uh, get in? How'd you start? What, uh, what was your, how'd you make the decision to leave uh, corporate world to get into sex work? What, how was that? So pretty much my entire life, I just assumed that my way out of poverty, and it wasn't untrue at all, was to go into the white collar workforce, right? I mean, there, there are other avenues that fit for other people. For me, my skills, my personality, that made sense for me, right? So I got an accounting license, I worked my way up the corporate ladder in finance, and I was probably around the height of my career when I left. I mean, it wasn't anything bad that happened at work that caused me to leave. I was very fortunate. I, I loved working in finance. I liked the work I was doing. I was doing well. My work was appreciated. I was actually upper partner when I left, and I developed clinical, real bad clinical depression, and it wasn't as far as I and my psychiatrist could tell caused by any specific environmental factor, it just kind of hit me, right? As, as depression commonly hits many, many people. And I had to take medical leave because I was unfit to deliver expert opinions, which was my job. Yeah. And I, fortunately I took medical leave with full benefits and had a very supportive group of colleagues and boss. And while I was on medical leave, and as I started recovering and thinking more clearly, it became real clear to me that I wasn't as able-minded and able-bodied as I was for the previous 15 years of my life. And I didn't think that it, I was going to be able to maintain my mental health if I went back to the same hours and pace that I was working in finance. And so I started thinking through other options and I kind of came to one of two decisions, right? One would be I would go back and I would have to work out some sort of flex working schedule. It's not great. It doesn't work super well in that industry. And my other option was to change careers into something that was a bit less time consuming and had better hours. 
And I was like, well, if I'm going to go option two, I probably want some additional financial cushion. And I also want to be able to feel productive. So while I was on medical leave, I started sugaring and I found that I really liked sex work. I was like, I'm good at this. I really enjoy it. I think I want to go pro. So I did it. And that was sort of, that was it. I never looked back. I still keep in touch with a lot of my old colleagues. It's actually been really great because I have friends now who are going the other direction where they're using sex work to fund a business degree or a law degree or education. And they come to me with certain questions and I'm like, oh, I still have connections in the industry. So let me help you. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Like going in, going into sex work, did you know anybody in that world uh, previously? Are you going in kind of like solo by yourself? Like I'm going to do this thing. Do you, what's your, I guess, knowledge going into sex work kind of? So Going into sugaring, I actually was very, very fortunate in that I have a friend who I've known for a few years who was who was an SD on, on seeking arrangements for like 10 years. And because we were friends, he was like, oh, let me help you. I can, I can tell you everything that I know from the SD side um, and help you stay safe and give you all this advice. So that was that was extremely valuable. I also had a very comfortable systematic approach to new industries and new workspaces because I worked in consulting before. And when you're working as an expert witness, you're going to be an expert on, say, financial matters and revenue recognition. But then your clients are going to be experts on solar panels and German chemicals manufacturing and all these things that you don't know as well. So you get very comfortable with unfamiliar industries and you do that by having a systematic approach to research. Okay. So when I went pro and in addition, in supplement rather to my, my friend's advice, I also did a ton of research online and people say that like, Oh, it's hard to find the stuff online. And I don't want to oversimplify it, but I think that some of them simply don't have the research training and thought process to find the relevant and available information because we, we now live in this information age where the problem is often not necessarily opacity. It's an inability to filter information and to draw relevant conclusions, right? So for me, it wasn't actually impossible. I mean, it certainly wasn't easy, but it wasn't, it wasn't inaccessibly difficult either to do a ton of research on Reddit and look at other providers marketing and come up with a, a business strategy or game plan, if you will, when I went pro. And that's not to say I didn't make mistakes with my marketing. I totally did. But I didn't feel as blind going into it as maybe some other people have experienced. Because, I mean, there there is like that information. If you want to find information on something, you can find it on there. You might on the Internet. You might have to filter through a lot of bullshit. But essentially you can find what you're looking for, you know, about whatever, whatever it is, you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. When you when you started, right. I know. So you start sugaring, then you get into escorting. Was there a difference between, did you find there was a difference between the two? Oh, hugely. Yeah. So one thing that I learned after I went pro was that a lot of people on SA are blacklisted escorting clients. And I'm like, oh, that's why some of these messages are so terrible, right? Um, (laughs) And I definitely prefer escorting. There are, I have friends who still sugar and they prefer the informality of it. They prefer the, uh, we'll say, gray area some of them 
don't consider themselves sex workers and I'm not going to tell them that they are or they're not. But for me, I think my strength as a service provider of any form is partially in my professionalism, my ability to run a business, my ability to provide a high quality service. And that's very much lost for me in sugaring. So escorting was absolutely a better experience for me and my clients. Hell yeah. Do you feel like there was like a, in escorting, there was like a learning curve or like a waiver period where you like weren't good at it? Oh, absolutely. And I would be shocked to hear anyone saying no to that question. I think whenever you're new to anything, you're, you're going to make mistakes, right? And hopefully your mistakes are not career enders and hopefully, hopefully your mistakes don't put you in danger, which obviously isn't always the case. There were definitely mistakes that I made. My initial marketing was not quite on the mark. I spent a lot of time and money on photography and web design and advertising that didn't work. And that's not unique to sex work, right? I think that that is a common experience in many, many, many industries. And then there were the rookie mistakes that I made. I now never accept last minute bookings. It's just not a recipe for success in terms of yeah. me providing the best service and, and being prepared. But at the time, I remember when I was brand new to escorting and I took a last minute booking in San Francisco and I showed up and I realized that I had left all of my condoms in the hotel and I had to oh, like go man. and buy condoms at like a Dwayne Reed or something like that. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. This is so unprofessional. Obviously I gave the client the time back, but that's not super respectful of my client's experience. So I was absolutely mortified. He was actually super nice about it. I guess his bar was sort of low with other providers being not true to their marketing or not looking like their photos or his main complaint was not just providers showing up not looking like their photos, like the catfishing issue, which is unfortunately common, but also a lot of providers, and I'm not throwing any shade here, this is just not my business plan, who market like degrees that they don't have or interests that they don't have because they think that that's what speaks to clients. Oh, and yeah. he was very pleasantly, he actually, he's a regular now. And he liked that I was true to my marketing, right? So I do really speak four languages. I do have these worldly interests. I do share his interest in scotch. So it, that mistake ended up not being that big of a deal, but it's still absolutely a mistake. And I, to this day, feel awful about showing up so unprofessional and unprepared with that client. Yeah. Going into sex work, right? Are you, like, because right now you're saying, like, on your website, you know, like, I speak multiple languages, I have interest in this. Were you always starting out, you're like, I'm going to make this Mia as true to myself as possible? Or are you, I'm going to, like make a separate like kind of person or like how did you I guess decide and like because I feel like marketing is like it's like there's so many ways you can market yourself how did you decide like which way you wanted to go with it I guess yeah absolutely so this is one area where I think working in finance perfectly prepared me to be the kind of escort that I wanted to be so I have the privilege of one sharing a lot of common interests and worldviews with my clients and to spending a lot of time with my clients in the business development capacity before I became an escort. So I looked at the clientele that I thought I would be best suited to serve and the clientele that I would most enjoy serving. And then I designed my, I reverse engineered my marketing to speak to that. So yes, my marketing is very, very true to me. There are certain identifiable details that have been changed, right? So yeah. 
obviously I'm not naming the companies I worked at. There are certain niche projects that I worked on in finance that I thought might identify me. So I changed the details of those. But otherwise, I'm fortunate not to have to market something that is not true to my authentic self. And because I'm lazy, it's less work for me. And I think, I hope that clients also have a better experience because it's obviously more effortless to be yourself than somebody else. Yeah, for sure. You don't have to lie about it. You're just like, I'm just speaking what I know. That's the easiest thing to do is talk about what you know, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And and I genuinely have an interest in a lot of the same things that my clients do, right? My my favorite bookings are the ones where my clients and I have a very deeply intellectual conversation because that is my mode of attraction. I am very attracted to intellectualism and intellectual chemistry. So for a client to teach me about string theory, I have a client with a PhD in physics uh, that now works in the quantitative finance field. And I asked him about his dissertation. I actually, because I had his information when I screened him, I actually pulled his dissertation and I was reading the abstract. And I was like, do you mind if I ask you questions about your work on string theory? And he's like, you know, my friends told me that I was single because I went on dates and talked about my work and that I shouldn't do that. And I was like, but I really want to ask you questions about your dissertation. (laughs) And he eventually answered them, but that was funny. I do probably love that. He was like, oh my God, someone's interested in what I'm interested about. We could talk about it, have this intellectual conversation. And as a beautiful lady, like, oh my God, this is fucking dope. This is great. Yeah, I love that. I uh, So I listened to you on the uh, Peep Show Old Pearl uh, combo episode that they did. And you mentioned when you came out uh, or when you started sex work, you like came out to everybody in your life. How was, how was that? It was great, actually. I was not surprised, but... I think my experience was very different than a lot of other providers where there was a lot of friction in coming out. And I think a lot of that is is circumstantial, right? I live in a big liberal city. I have a wonderful partner. I don't care about my family. (laughs) (laughs) So things were really stacked in my favor. I, I had a couple of very close friends that took issue to it. And I was just like, look, it's gonna be a big part of my life. You're either gonna be okay with it or we're not gonna be friends. I give zero fucks. Yeah. So my my being out experience has been very easy, but that is I'll put it this way, I don't know anybody else that had that easy of an experience being out. I mean, that has to be good though to where you can tell people and they're receptive and you're like, "Fuck it, world, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing." And then they fucking everyone's like, "Yes, we accept. This is great." Yeah, the best is when swerfs say dumb shit about my industry and I'm like, "No, no, no, no. Finance was my career of last resort." escorting is my first choice god it's such like swerves are the fucking worst like i uh i did a i talked about this whole like Pornhub thing a couple weeks ago with uh like visa and mastercard like basically dropping them from the website and there's like a fucking exodus cry this like i guess group that's like against like Pornhub basically and they have a bunch of like anti-sex work videos on their website and they talk about they're like prostitution is the choice for people who don't have any choices right and it's like such a like a narrative that they push. It's like people are only doing this because they have no other choice or they're like exploited. And I'm like, but you haven't talked to Mia Lee. You haven't heard her story because obviously that's <laughs> not that's not the fucking narrative there. And it's like it's just like so fucking it's it's so crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that some swerfs are truly well meaning. Maybe a lot of them, right? So my friend Eliza Orleans is running for a district attorney in Manhattan. 
and she will effectively decriminalize sex work by refusing to prostitute, uh, excuse me, refusing to prosecute prostitution and solicitation charges, minor drug offenses. And one of the things that she and I and my PR contacts and her PR team are working on is doing a joint interview with main, mainstream media outlets because she feels very strongly that if I share my story and my perspective, it might change the minds in potentially influential people who unwittingly supported lobbying and voting in favor of FOSTA-SESTA, the Earn It Act, and other harmful legislation because people hear trafficking and they're just like, oh, of course trafficking is horrible. I also think trafficking is horrible. But the way that it's defined and the actual impact on consensual sex workers is worse, I think. And she really felt like my story would be very relatable to these people, right? Because it's not that swerfs who live on Park Avenue don't care about street-based sex workers but their stories sort of feed this narrative that sex work is inherently exploitative. Whereas I sat on boards with these people, I worked in the office next to these people. And when I start pointing out to some of my friends in corporate careers, well, finance wasn't a hop, skip and a joy all the time, right? I'll tell you this much. I wasn't working at my first firm as a first year associate 80 hours a week because I didn't need the money. And when you put things into relevant context for people, I think that it could potentially have a positive outcome. Oh, definitely, for sure. Because it's like people like you only kind of see stories that fit the narrative of what you want to believe. So when you see something uh, that's outside of, I guess, your viewpoint, you're like, holy shit, it challenges your whole thought of what something is. And then you forever changed by just a new fucking like dialogue or new th- something you never fucking heard before. And just like a lot, like you sharing that with so many people and then changing minds. I feel like it's just like, that's how it happens. I'm hoping. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping. And it was interesting because I was chatting with a good friend of mine who works for one of the big tech companies. And she told me that she's like, well, it's been about two years since my last major HR incident. So, you know, I'm just kind of waiting for the next one. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, yeah, well, remember how I moved from San Francisco to New York because I couldn't get away from that manager who was sexually harassing me and the firm like didn't take adequate steps to remediate the situation. I was like, yeah, that was horrible. And she's like, yeah, so now I don't wear pants. Uh, she's, she's like, I don't wear skirts to work and I intentionally wear pants and clothes that are a couple of sizes too big. So I make myself less attractive. So I don't draw unwanted attention. And I I mean, this is a girl who went to Harvard. She's a senior software engineer. She is not selling sex, right? And she feels objectified and sexually harassed every day when she goes to work. And that's horrible. And I was like, and she was like, "Do, do you have these issues? And I'm like, as a hooker? No, never. I was like, my clients are respectful. They're great. Like, I don't, and that's crazy to me, right? That I feel less objectified and sexually harassed as a sex worker than somebody who went to Harvard and works for a major tech company and isn't selling sex. Yeah. It's incredible because also too, like you could fire whatever client or whoever, like if say somebody were to sexually, you could just fire them as a client, but it's like your fucking boss, your boss, it's like. You don't have any pat like money rules over everything, so it's like, oh, this person is bringing all the, all this money. Why would we forsake that money on account of you? You know, it's like it's such, ah, it's bullshit. Yeah, I had a managing director that I worked for in a Latin American country. Uh, it was a really high profile project, 
And I was under the mistaken conception that because I was the expert and I was supposed to testify in front of a congressional committee to my findings that I was going to be difficult to replace, right? I mean, most people are not irreplaceable, but I was like, it's going to be hard for you to explain to Congress why you fired me for like making a sexual harassment complaint, right? So I thought this would be a good opportunity for me to speak up, right? And I have a colleague there who was also pretty senior, who's openly gay and sort of masculine presenting. I want to, I don't know if that's the right word, but, but a butch lesbian, okay. right? And, and I'm, I'm bi, but I'm very femme presenting and I don't hide my sexual orientation. But at the time I had a male partner and I don't necessarily broadcast it at work simply because it doesn't come up, right? Yeah. If somebody asks about my partner, I will reveal my partner's gender if it's relevant to the conversation. But in any event, my team in Brazil assumed I was straight as a lot of people do. And basically this client just made really awful in public, like in a public group sort of statements about my colleague's sexuality. And I was not happy about it. So I went and complained to the head of our office in that country. And she was like, look, this is a really important client. You obviously don't understand the culture here in this country. And (laughs) I don't want to hear about this again. And I was like, but this, I was like, well, I'm also not heterosexual and this makes me uncomfortable, which is literally the definition of sexual harassment. And I pointed out to her that as a U.S. employee, I am protected by U.S. employment law. And she's like, that's not my problem. This conversation is over and don't burn this client relationship or I'll ruin your career. So that happened when I was working in an industry that's supposedly not exploitative in that way, right? Yeah. But yet it is. Yeah, way more so than my current job. So, yeah. Damn. But at least that's good. Uh, Did you feel like getting out of the corporate world, getting into sex work, there was more like freedom like in that? Yeah, absolutely. But I think that that's because I was a survival finance worker and I'm not a survival sex worker, right? you're not going to have that level of freedom unless you have economic leeway. So yes, I have a lot more flexibility, but I also have a lot of flexibility funded by the financial security that finance bought me. Yeah. I like, yeah, I like the term financial, survival, uh, financial, what'd you say? I was a survival finance worker. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like I can quit sex work at any time, right? And do, do other things, take, time off. I did not have that option as a first year associate in finance. I grew up in foster care. I didn't have loans luckily because I worked through school, but I also couldn't afford to just like take six months off if I wanted to. I'd be like, no, I need to pay my bills. Right. Yeah. It is interesting how they put like survival, like, cause yeah, survival finance, everybody survive, like everybody's working to make money, you know, like I'm certain, like somebody might be surviving working at fucking McDonald's, you know? And like, but you put survival in front of sex work and then it like, it's, it changes how it is, but it's like, everybody is doing a job to survive. Like it's, that's how it is. Yeah. I worked at McDonald's when I was a teenager and I didn't love it. I look, I'm not saying some people don't love working in food service. I'm just saying I wasn't one of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And not everybody, yeah, not everybody loves their job. That's, that's how it is. That's also why you get paid for it. Like if you would do something for free, you'd be paying someone else to do it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. A hundred percent. I know you mentioned uh, being in a relationship, right? How was getting into sex work, being in a relationship? How was that? It's actually been great. So it's something that I, I write about 
on Reddit, I mean, not in any formal capacity, and, and I speak about to really encourage other sex workers to not settle. And again, I don't think this issue is unique to sex work. I have plenty of friends who are lawyers and bankers who settle for relationships that are not serving all of their wants and needs because of various reasons, including but not limited to, they don't want to be alone, their jobs are disruptive to their lives, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, I actually started escorting shortly after I started dating my partner and I told him what I was going to do. And he was like, yeah, I think it'll, I think it'll be great at it. I think this will be a great opportunity for you. He and I both look at sex work almost like any other work, right? And I say almost because obviously there is a recognizable societal stigma. We still have a cover story that I'm a lingerie model when we meet certain friends and acquaintances of his that we just don't want to get into it with them. Yeah. But for our relationship, it's been great because I'll tell you, I would not have been able to have such a healthy relationship if I was still working in finance. For one thing, I would have been living in the Delta One cabin between New York and South America. I would have had much worse mental health. I just simply didn't have the bandwidth emotionally and temporally to have a healthy romantic relationship when I was working the hours that I was working. And that's why I was single for like four or five years toward the end of my finance career. I mean, I am super impressed when I hear of people who hold their marriages together the year they're up for partner. Like it was rough (laughs) for me. How is it having like that support system, like being in a relationship? How is that having that support system and also like with work? It's amazing. And it's especially amazing because my partner shares a lot of my worldviews. So he matches all of my swap donations. We co-sponsored a few podcast episodes together. He volunteers his skills and expertise in cybersecurity and technology for other sex workers. I I actually have a, a colleague recently who had her Twitter account suspended and my partner was able to help her file an appeal and um, give her some advice to hopefully get it reinstated. We don't know if they're going to reinstate it yet, but she said that he was very helpful. And we are very committed to sex worker rights, sex worker harm reduction. And it's great, honestly. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. Being like, so you start in 2019, 2020, a little something called COVID happens. Mm. And uh, changes the world forever. How has uh, working through COVID, how has New York City been during COVID? How how has that been for you? Yeah, so I would say the primary impact on me, in addition to the volume reduction, is I'm getting warped data in terms of feedback on my marketing, right? So it's sometimes hard to discern what of my marketing is truly flawed versus what of my marketing is simply uh, volume reduction due to lockdowns, right? So my clientele is in large part white collar workers, executives, business and tech executives. And some of them are like, look, I just can't make up an excuse to get out of the house right now. And prior to COVID, I was getting booked for things like conferences and a lot of like social corporate outings, which I love because I, I really enjoyed those things when I was working in finance too. And that that's like really my forte. That's where I can deliver a lot of value to my clients because discretion is obviously in high demand and it's very useful to a client 
to be able to introduce me as their lawyer, their attorney, their M&A consultant. I actually have a couple of clients that followed me from finance into this industry. And these are clients who are super skittish about their, about their discretion. They probably, well, one has told me outright that he would have never sought out a sex worker if I had not changed careers into this industry. Nice. And so a lot of the aspects of my job that I love have been on hold. And of course, it's unfortunate. But I also feel very grateful that I have the financial flexibility to weather the storm, so to speak. And yeah. I'm very much looking forward to seeing the business grow, my business grow, and other other providers' business grow post-vaccine. I actually have a client who I was chatting with the other evening, and he was like, listen, take vacation now. You're going to be so busy when the vaccine rolls out. He's like, really take vacation now. And my partner and I are like, yes, we need to like visit all the national parks. We need to do everything because you're going to be busy. <laughs> Once that vaccine rolls out, motherfuckers going to be dancing in the streets. People are going to be coming out, hopefully. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm looking forward to it. I, I like being productive. So I'm looking forward to it. I know uh, a lot of people have turned to like online sex work uh, during this time. Have you done uh, worked uh, online at all? A little bit. And I just started a just for fans. I actually didn't want to deal with OnlyFans because it's not a particularly user or sex worker friendly platform. And I just didn't want to deal with like getting kicked off or being an in-person provider and all of that. So I had another sex worker recommend just for fans to me and it's made for sex workers by sex workers. So I'm like, Oh, okay. This seems like a, a more user-friendly platform. So I have that. And I realize that there's a ton of competition uh, in the online space right now. So I wanted to be thoughtful about how I enter that space. And I decided to do it really as a supplement to my in-person business. Right. So it's a way for clients to get a little bit more access to me, it's a way for clients to keep in touch with me, who I see in person, who I can't see as often right now. It will likely never be a significant source of revenue for me, but it's really a supplement to my, my in-person business. And I think if I approached it as anything else, I wouldn't have been in any way successful, however you want to define that, because a lot of the online content that's floating around is just much more explicit than what I want to do. Okay, yeah. That makes sense. So everybody, some people putting it all out, some people just a little bit, you know, it's it's up to everybody. I mean, what am I saying? <laughs> yeah, one everybody puts I, out what they want. Yeah, so one thing that I, that I saw another provider do that I would love to experiment with in 2021 is doing these live Q&As. I don't show my face online, uh, so I won't show my face online even to my subscribers, but I would love to do an online Q&A. My, my friend who works in the creative space was like, what if you did like a sexy escort Bloomberg kind of thing? And I was like, yeah, that might actually be fun. So I that think once great. I build my subscriber base to the point where this is worthwhile for me and I wouldn't be like me talking to one person online, right? I might actually do something like that. I think I want to gather a little bit more consumer data before I launch that. Yeah, that makes that would be cool though. Like, I feel like a lot of people would like that. I hope so. We'll see. I think it would be fun. Yeah. How has your experience as an Asian woman been in sex work? Do you feel like it's been any different from white providers at all? What do you think? Yeah. So I'm gonna give a very narrow and potentially biased response here. I think that 
I have been less affected by the racial discriminative pricing within sex work for, I don't know, probably a lot of reasons, right? But there is an association with Asian sex workers and lower priced massage parlors and all of that. I haven't been super impacted by that. I think a lot of that is just the way I market. So I haven't seen much of an impact on my business. If anything, it's helped me because I have certain clients who are more attracted to Asian women. But I think the market space of attraction to Asian women who are integrated into the predominant culture in a Western country has worked very well for me. And if you look at the stats for online dating and messaging, Asian women actually get the most responses in terms of online vanilla dating, right? Really? So I think that being Asian has helped me, but a lot of that is biased by my existing privilege, if you will, of being integrated into the the predominant white majority culture. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you feel like the best part of the job, worst part of the job is for you? The best part of the job is probably many, many things, right? I, I love running a business. I love my business. I really enjoy my time and experience with my clients. I have wonderful clients. I love the flexibility it affords me. Obviously, the money is great. Um, I, I think the worst parts of the job are for me, the stigma on an individual first degree level, I don't really care about, but I had an experience recently where my partner had a friend who was extremely horophobic and being stuck in a room with that person and my partner was not super pleasant because it wasn't someone that I know who I can just be like, oh, you're canceled, whatever, I don't care, right? This was someone in my partner's life that even if only for that one dinner, I had to be civil to, and I was really struggling with it. I was like, I really want to leave, but there are no Ubers here, and you drove, and I can't strand everyone without the car, you know? Oh, man, yeah. But the good news is he doesn't talk to that bitch anymore, so we're good. Hell yeah. (laughs) You can just choose, like, if you're like, I can cut this person out of my life. Like, we don't need this shit. Yeah, out of respect and consideration for me, we were just like, well, duh, right? I mean, if I had a friend who was really racist, and my my partner is from Spain, and he's a dual citizen, but he still has an accent because he grew up in Spain. And if I had a friend who was really racist against Spanish people, I would be like, you're canceled. Goodbye. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 100%. (laughs) So this is the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) Do you feel like your views on sex or sexuality have changed since uh, starting sex work? Not really. But I think that's partially because I was either set in my ways or self-aware, depending on how you want to cut that. (laughs) Um, So no, because I've always been a very logical and libertarian-leaning person. So my views on sex and sexuality really haven't changed at all, but that's probably a boring answer that your listeners don't want to (laughs) hear. What up listeners? No, they love that answer. I'm telling you right now. (laughs) Now you're just being nice. (laughs) (laughs) 
Have your views on men or women changed since starting? Also, not really. And I'm going to defer to the same answer I gave about sex and sexuality. I think that, I think that this is a business that will, that will really eat you alive if you struggle with boundaries. And again, that's not unique to sex work, right? I, I did a brief internship on a trading floor and it's about as harsh and cutthroat as you would expect it to be. And as a woman who rose up through the ranks in a very male dominated industry, right? So when you look at certain areas of finance, it seems very equal based on certain statistics. But as you, as you advance in your career, the room becomes much more white and much more male. Yeah. And by the time I left, we had these uh, weekly leadership management, whatever meetings. I don't know why they were on Monday mornings, but whatever. So I was in this meeting and my first roll call, I was like, oh, like all the women must just be on vacation or something. And I was like, oh, that is not the case. So I think that in finance, my experience was much better than a lot of other women in industries like tech and finance or even medicine, because I always had a very stalwart view of myself, the industry, my work. And I think that women often get frustrated by being tapped for unpaid labor, administrative roles, things like that. And it just never occurred to me to say yes to those things. I was like, no, I'm not doing this. This is not advancing my career. I remember being six and somebody giving me a doll. And I was like, oh, thanks, but no thanks. And she was like, well, one day you're going to be a mom and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, why would I want to be a mom? And she was like, well, you're a woman. And I was like, what does being a mom pay? And she was like, she gave me some answer, like love, joy, whatever. And I was just like, <laughs> no, I think I want to be a doctor. And yeah. it was just, but that was always my, my baseline mentality, right? Is it's okay. Not only is it okay, there's literally nothing wrong with being self-serving. And so my views on men and women were exactly the same in finance and in sex work, where of course I want to be client-centric and of course I want to deliver good service. And I can do that better in both industries by respecting myself and my time and doing things that will advance my career and by proxy the service that I deliver to my clients. Yeah, 100%. Has how you view yourself changed at all before starting since starting? Almost the same question, but do you view yourself any differently since getting into sex work? Maybe a little bit. I think because I have had the opportunity and window into the lives of so many people who have disabilities because this industry attracts a lot of very neurodiverse individuals, I have become more thoughtful of people's disabilities and the more negative experiences that people who have a tougher time in life have and have had. Yeah. What would you tell somebody wanting to get into escorting? What would you, would you get any advice for that person? I think it would depend on who the person is. So I think that there is this perception that a lot of civilians have that the majority of your work is done in person with clients. And that's just very opposite of my experience. 
So I've had some civilian friends say like, hey, could you just, could I get like client referrals or could you bring me in on a duo? And I just say no, because I think that I charge my clients a lot and I want them to have a good professional experience. And I frankly wouldn't refer you business when I have the option to refer business to someone who I know has experience and someone who I know is going to show up and deliver a good service. Yeah. And the majority of the work, at least the way I run my business and a lot of my colleagues run our businesses is done in marketing and screening and on the back end so that when you get to the booking, you feel safe and comfortable and you can do your best work. So for civilians to think that having sex with a stranger is the hard part, I can understand why they would think that, but that's not my experience. And I would tell someone new to the industry that it's, I guess if you, if you want to run it with a high degree of professionalism, it's just like any other business, right? Like you do your research, you invest in the business and that's the business, right? Yeah. But I think that what I've seen is a lot of people getting into the business for reasons that are different than why I got into the business. And a lot of people getting into the business for reasons that I don't want to say are wrong, but certainly reasons that led to them having a bad experience doing this kind of work. Oh, okay, that makes sense. I think that it's not a great business for someone with boundary challenges. Yeah, that makes yeah, that makes one hundred percent sense. Would you have any advice? Like, say somebody, I'm sure Pete, somebody's listening to the podcast right now. They want to see a sex worker. They never have. They want to take the plunge. Do you have any advice for that person who is wanting to do it, never seen anybody before? Do you have any advice for that, like a potentially new client? Sure. I think it would also depend on on the client and what they're looking for and what they're nervous about, if anything. So one of the most common mistakes that I see clients make is reaching out without specifying time, date, whatever. It's one of my biggest pet peeves. And I have structured my business to avoid that, right? So people think they're being nice by being like, hey, I really loved your ad and I would love to see you sometime. Well, when is sometime? And I'm not getting to answer this email. So actually my, my partner and I have, have booked a provider before and I made sure to not make any of these rookie client mistakes. I'm like, are you available for three hours on this date at this time? And if you're not available, here are some other windows that work for me. Please let me know what works for you. Here's our screening. I made sure to put everything in one email. And I, I treated her business like it's any other high quality time, valuable business so that I could give her all the information to get back to us in one email. Right. And this is maybe a mentality that followed me from finance where time is money. But that would be my advice is when you're reaching out to a provider for the first time, don't assume that that person just wants to get into a friendly chat. That's free labor and that's insulting to that person's business. So reach out. If you want to be a respectful client, reach out having read the website, having researched that provider and reach out with only information that isn't obviously answered. Reach out with questions that aren't answered on their website. If you have any, you probably shouldn't have any if the website is robust and reach out for logistics only, right? It should be, I want to see you for three hours on Monday, January 2nd or whatever it is. Are you available? Yeah. Cause a lot of people like it's when you're in business, right? And you're sending somebody an email, you want to send somebody an email with all the relevant information so they can come back to you with an answer, right? Not so they can come back with you to another question, you know, and just treating it like it's almost like a business, a business thing will just help it out so much. Like it's, that's how, yeah, that's how I see it. Because it is a business, right? And one of the things that really irked me 
in sugaring was this idea that basically sex work doesn't work, right? That I, I had messages from some dudes who were like, well, I don't like to give money because I want someone to like me for me. And I'm like, bro, you're very <laughs> no, old and completely uninteresting. So while I'm happy to take this on as a job, it is very much a job. I had one delusional dude be like, oh, what does your boyfriend offer you that I don't? And I'm like, I could answer that question, but it would not be a very nice answer, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and I think that just because sex work is a transaction doesn't mean it can't be an enjoyable one, right? It's like going to a restaurant that serves you chicken soup does not make your mom's chicken soup any less homey. And, and I think if everybody in my fantasy world respected sex work as a professional service and we treated it like booking a really nice massage or something like that or, or making a doctor's appointment, like you wouldn't email your therapist and say, hey, let's grab a beer and like get to know each other, right? No, you email your therapist and you're like, I would like a, an appointment at 4 p.m. on Thursday. Literally, literally, you're not, you don't text your therapist, you avail, you know? <laughs> yeah, I text my therapist with logistics relevant information. Like, hey, I am going to need to move this meeting. Hey, I need a refill of my medication. You know, it, it's like, yeah, everything else should be discussed on paid time. Logistics relevant information. That is key. Like you said, <laughs> that'll make the whole transaction way smoother. Are uh, are you a fan of stand-up comedy at all? I am very much so. Well, obviously, Tank, I'm a fan of you and your podcast. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do love stand-up comedy. I'm looking forward to comedy shows resuming in New York. I am very much against paid labor, or sorry, unpaid labor. So when I watch, like, dry comedy bar or things like that, I'm always like, ooh, like, how can I pay this person? I'll, like, look for their cash app or something like that. Yeah. So I try to participate in, like, the fair pay trade, if that makes sense. So oh some of my enjoyment of comedy is sort of hampered by that, uh, on principle, if you want to call it that. Oh, yeah. Com- com- nobody's, nobody in comedy is getting money unless they're at the top. Everybody else is getting $20 and two drinks, you know? And you're not even getting drinks because it's quarantine. So like bars aren't open, right? Which is such bullshit. So so everyone listening to this podcast, get on Tank's Patreon, support the show. If you want it to keep existing, it's a lot of work. Hell yeah. Patreon.com slash full service pod. Subscribe. That'd be great. That'd be awesome. (laughs) And if you show me your subscription, I will credit the amount toward a booking or my just for fan subscription for potential clients that are listening. Hell yeah. Go do that. Do you have a favorite comedy spot in New York? I mean, there's so there's so many. Do you have a favorite spot? Yeah, yeah. So there is, or was, I don't know if they're going to come back. I hope they do. There was this educational comedy space called Caveat on the Lower East Side where they would do these really cool shows. They were between an hour and an hour and a half long and all the tickets were like under $30, so super accessible. But it was kind of like your favorite place to nerd out and get drunk. So- nice they would do these really cool shows, like one where they brought in someone who had a PhD in genetics and someone who had a PhD in botany. And they would be interviewed by a writer for some scientific publications, maybe the Scientific American. 
So the three of them would get on stage and they would do a presentation interview about some very interesting topic and make something very technical, very accessible. So I think this episode that I saw that I'm thinking of was about CRISPR and the healing effects on and pharmaceutical applications of some plant that only grows above like 5,000 meters somewhere in Peru or something like that. Wow. And then there'd be an intermission and then there was an improv troupe that would come and perform and use all of the educational material that we had just learned for their improv. And it was super cool, super accessible. I love, love learning. So that was my favorite comedy venue. That's pretty cool. I feel like I've, I've seen like I've been on a show before where it was like half stand up, half improv. And like you did your stand up set and then like the improv group would go up and basically do like improv off of your set. So, I mean, that's always that's how I like. That sounds like a cool ass spot. That'd, that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. It was super, super cool. Before we uh, before we get out of here, do you want to end on a story? You got a story for the people out there? I'm sure I have one. But, oh, you know what? Actually, I, I do have a story. So one of my earlier bookings, I, I definitely market to longer bookings because I feel like that's when I can, that's how I can provide the best service and the best experience. So I actually got a booking that was not through ads, not through my website, but really a buddy of mine that I went to college with. And he had a friend who worked in finance who was in San Francisco for a large conference. And I happened to be in San Francisco with my partner that same few days. And my buddy was like, about a week before the conference, he's like, hey, so this is really random, but I've got this friend who hires escorts and he is going to be at this conference. Do you want me to connect you? Because I think you guys get along. And I was like, oh, sure. Like, if he books me, I would be happy to give you a referral fee. And my friend was like, no, really, like, you can buy me a drink, whatever. And I was like, okay, well, I offered. So... This client ends up booking me. He's like, yeah, she seems great. And he sent me an email with kind of like a rough itinerary so I wouldn't be caught off guard. He was like, okay, well, I would really love – he's like, are you available for an overnight? I was like, no, I'm actually there for uh, a personal commitment. So I can't do an overnight, but I can do six hours with you. So he was like, great, that's fine. And uh, and so he books me for the six hours, gave me the deposit, and gave me all the screening information – and I show up to this hotel suite and he's on the phone. And based on, I wasn't eavesdropping. I was like, hey, do you want me to wait in another room? Do you want me to wait outside? Is this privileged and confidential information? And he was like, no, 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 you can have a seat. So I sat there and I was just, you know, like on my phone or whatever. And I, I couldn't help overhearing his conversation. And I was like, and when he got off the phone, I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Am I catching you in the middle of a high yield debt conversion? And he was like, oh yeah, that's right. Our mutual friend mentioned that you used to work in finance. And we got to talking about his case and all of that. And I, I realized immediately it was very similar to an expert opinion that I had written like a year ago. And I was like, okay, just out of curiosity, like what precedent opinion are you using for this? He's like, oh, some guy at this firm, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, and I gave him the name and he's like, yeah, I think so. And he's like, how did you know that? And I was like, this is my boss. I wrote that opinion. And he was like, you've got to be kidding me. And, and the way expert opinions are often written, like there are two affidavits that are filed. So one is the partner that signs the opinion, and the second one is the next most senior person on the team that ran the team, right? So the second affidavit was mine, and I would normally never give a client my legal name, but I just really wanted to run this conversation to the ground, and I was super curious. And he was someone that I got through referral, so it was a little bit different. 
And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to show this guy my driver's license and my CPA license because I don't, if I were him, I wouldn't believe it was me. Right. Although yeah. how would I have done that if it wasn't me? So he was like, he was like, oh my God, that's amazing. And we were supposed to go to this like cocktail networking happy hour. And he was like, would it be okay if we skipped the cocktail hour? And I just like ask you some questions about my term sheet. And I was like, yeah, bro, you paid for my time. We can spend it doing whatever you want. And he's like, oh yeah, that'd be amazing. So he's like pulling out all of his documents. And I was like, I was like, do you want me to like do this lingerie? And he's like, no, no, no. I want you to keep all your clothes on so we can focus on my term sheet. And I was like, okay, cool. So (laughs) so I gave him the advice and then we, and then we ended up going out to dinner with like this client of his who was absolutely terrible. And he warned me that the guy's like insufferable. The client of his gets real drunk. The white, the client's wife gets really drunk. And his client was one of those people who had like inherited all of his money, loved to hear the sound of his own voice. And my client at one point was like, dude, if you could just like make a, an underhanded comment or ask this guy a question that would make everybody uncomfortable, I, I would love that. And I was like, yeah, I could do that. So like I ended up asking my client's client about like Ferris medals or something. And of course, the guy didn't know anything, but he was like running his mouth and everyone at the table just kind of like fell silent. And then the wife went to the bathroom with me and she and she was so lit at this point. She probably took some other drugs too. I don't know. <laughs> and she was like, I'm only with him for the kids. <laughs> and I was like, I went back and told my client that in the cab back to the hotel. And he was like, dude, that was amazing. He was like, I didn't have specific expectations coming into this, but like you have exceeded them. And so, you know, we go back and we have our intimate time and whatever. And as, as I'm getting ready to leave and I was like, wow, I've had such a good time. I'm so sorry I wasn't available for an overnight, but I have to return to my personal commitment. And he was like, what was your bill rate when you were in consulting, when you were in finance? And I was like, I was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, like in the accounting department they had, I was like, I think it was like 500 an hour, which is less than what I charge as a companion. Say what you will about that. Um, And so he, as I'm walking out, he hands me five bills and he's like, this is for your consulting advice. And I was like, wow, that's extremely generous. Like I I don't expect tips. Um, They're often, of course they're appreciated, but I, I never, it doesn't make a client a bad client if they don't tip. And I was like, wow, are you sure you want to do that? Like you already paid for my time. And he's like, no, 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 that was you will take it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So that was probably one of my funniest and best bookings. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> he had like, he has no idea that he come in, you just add all this value to the, oh my God. That's, That's, That's what he told me. He was just like, he was like, I did not imagine any human being could add this much value to my life. And I was like, <laughs> cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I was of help. Hell Yeah. <laughs> Well, Mia, I appreciate you coming on the podcast so much. My pleasure. Hell yeah. Before we get out of here, do you want to plug some old social media stuff where the people can find you out there? Sure, sure. So I'm on Twitter at Mia Lee NYC. And that's about it because I'm social media incompetent. (laughs) Hell yeah. Mia Lee NYC on Twitter. Everybody give her a follow. Mia, I appreciate you coming on. It was great speaking with you, Tank. Hell yeah. Listeners, we will be back later that was my interview with mia lee yo shout out mia i appreciate you coming on the podcast that was such a good time listener she just plugged it i will plug it again you can find her on twitter at mia lee nyc i will have a link to her twitter in the libsyn page from this week so make sure you hit that libsyn page show her some love as always you can find us on twitter on instagram at full service pod i am at tank funkadelic 
If you want to support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash fullservicepod. You'll be able to hear interviews, episodes you cannot hear anywhere else. I mentioned it at the beginning of the episode. Our monthly Patreon-exclusive episode will be dropping this week. So if you want to check it out, patreon.com slash fullservicepod. If you enjoy the show, make sure you are subscribed on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Hit that like button, hit that follow button, that subscribe button. You'll be alerted as soon as those new episodes drop. If you want to be on the show, if you want to hear anything talked about on the show, if you just want to write in and let us know how you're doing, I will read it. Fullservicepod at gmail.com. Send us an email. If you like what we're doing here week after week, make sure you hit us with a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Write us a review. That would help us out so much. This has been episode 71. I appreciate you being here. We're about to hit 30,000 downloads tomorrow. Super excited about that. Could not have done that without you listening, so I truly appreciate it. Shout out to fucking every guest I've had on the podcast. That would not be possible without you. Shout out to everybody. Shout out to the people subscribed on Patreon. The true fans. Hey. (laughs) Truly appreciate that. We will be back on Tuesday. What's what's happening next week? Is it going to be a solo? Is it going to be an interview? Ooh, boy. Follow us on Twitter to find out. <laughs> At Full Service Bot. But uh, we will be back on Tuesday. Leaning towards an interview. But you never know. So <laughs> we'll be back. I hope you have a great week. Uh, happy MLK Day. Ooh, boy. I'm recording on Monday. It's Martin Luther King Day. The banks are closed. Yo, check out that fucking, that Vietnam speech. That Vietnam speech, though. That's hotter. That's a hitter right there. That's better than I have a dream, I think. But, uh, yo, fuck it. Yo, I hope you're doing well. Hope uh, COVID's all right, wherever you're at. And, uh, hey, we'll be back on Tuesday. I'll talk to you later. Peace. service.